Welcome to Living from the Soul. This is your host, Sam Tarode, and today I'm happy to be speaking with my friend Mark Stevens. Mark has been a police officer for 13 years, first in Phoenix and now in Nashville. With the trial of George Floyd's killer about to begin in Minneapolis and two more mass shootings in recent weeks, I thought it would be timely to talk with Mark about racism, policing, gun culture, and other issues. I also know that Mark recently started meditating, and I wanted to ask him about that. I hope you'll enjoy this unusual conversation with an unusual police officer. Hey, Mark. How are you? Good. I'm wondering how anonymous you have to be. Can we say your name? Yeah, yeah, name's fine. It's... Don't want to get you in any trouble, so... <laughs> We met a few years ago and you had an interview on the Everyone's Agnostic podcast and then we yes. we met in a discussion group. You're still the only police officer I'm actually friends with in real life. So. <laughs> That's not terribly surprising. And you're an unusual one. You have some views that I would guess are unusual among your compatriots. They are they are not typical, that is for sure. Yeah, there are certain jobs I just could never imagine doing myself because I don't have the personality for it. And police officer is definitely one of those. Yeah, it's not for everybody. There's no doubt about it. Honestly, I never really thought it was for me either. Um, I kind of, about 13 years ago, decided to do it on a whim. Really? And it's for me to an extent. I mean, I've been successful at it. And I'm able to do it my way, which has worked out. But like you said before, I'm certainly not your bread and butter police officer. That's for sure. So what inspired you to sign up? Well, prior to policing, um, I was in the mortgage industry um, and I did mortgages because I honestly never knew what I wanted to do. I, I've never known what I wanted to do. And out of graduating college, um, I went to a job fair and went to a bunch of interviews and handed out my resume and bank one at the time, they're not even in existence anymore. Uh, they're, they've since become Chase Bank. But they called me for an interview, so I interviewed and I got hired and I ended up doing mortgages for nine years. Well, in 2004, I went to work for Wells Fargo and I started doing subprime mortgage lending. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't know what I knew at the time, but had I been a little bit more savvy, I, prob I very easily could have predicted what happened in the fall of 2008. Wow. And for four years, I looked at hundreds and hundreds of bad loans, essentially, that were by the underwriting guidelines at the time, actually good loans. And I actually got out of mortgages before the crash of 2008, a, a few months before, which was just coincidental. But I had spent so much time essentially doing predatory lending. It just, it just wore on me. It didn't feel good. It didn't seem like I was doing any good in the world. Um, I didn't particularly enjoy it. And I wanted something new. And particularly, I wanted something where I could make an impact and do some good in the world. And quite randomly on a whim, I was like, well, I could be a police officer. And, and keep in mind too, I was extremely naive at the time. I'm a white male who grew up in a small town in a Christian home. Prior to becoming a police officer, I don't think I ever had to call them for anything. I had no experience with policing. I was very, very, very naive. It took me a while to grow up basically. So at the time, my purview was that I could do a lot of good in police work. Um, and I think I have, but there's definitely some inherent flaws to policing in America, for sure, which I was completely unaware of at the time. 
you went from one industry with kind of a sketchy reputation to another. <laughs> I did. And I didn't know that I was, I really didn't know that I was. And it, it's, it's not the cop's fault for the most part, in some cases it is, but it's, it's the laws. It's the laws that are written that we have to enforce. And it's just the societal structure that we live in. And all, I was naive to all of this, that none of it occurred to me until quite honestly, about four years ago. So how did you start becoming aware of these things? Uh, well, in 2016, I believe it was April of 2016, uh, Philando Castile was shot and killed. And that was the first police shooting where I looked at it from, uh, or attempted at least to look at it from a different point of view. So, you know, like everybody else, I'm, I'm not unique in this way. I started a career in policing. So for the first several years, it becomes a club and I did policing the right way and I had good intentions. And quite honestly, the department I worked for at the time, I was surrounded by a bunch of good people and we just didn't do what you saw on the news. And so my experience was that policing wasn't what was shown on the news. And as different police shootings became public and were caught on film, I initially took the negative feedback very personally because, you know, I didn't do it that way. That's, that's not how I did policing and the people around me didn't do policing that way. So I took it personally and I stood up for my profession and tried to explain to people some of the reasons why these officers weren't being convicted. Mm -hmm. But truthfully, I was missing the bigger picture. The Philando Castile shooting was the first one. So if anybody doesn't remember that one, it was in Minnesota. Uh, Philando Castile worked at a school. Uh, he worked in the cafeteria. He was notorious for buying kids lunches who couldn't afford it. He had a criminal record, but it was very minor. His criminal record was the result of being poor, essentially. One thing I've learned over the years is that poverty and criminality actually overlap quite a lot. And a lot of criminality is simply the result of being impoverished. And when people are given opportunities, they just don't commit crimes. When they have better options, they don't commit crimes. And well, Philando Castile, from everything I've been able to tell, fit that bill. A lot of his crimes were driving related. So if you get pulled over for speeding, which we all do from time to time, if you're poor, that's actually a really big deal. Because when you're given that citation, you can't pay it because you've got other bills that are much more pressing. Right. Um, so if you don't pay a speeding ticket, the next step is your driver's license becomes suspended. Well, again, if you're poor, that's a much bigger deal than if you're not. The next time you get pulled over, you now have a criminal offense against you because your license is suspended. And that's actually a misdemeanor pretty much in every state in the country. Well, if you get cited for a misdemeanor, you still can't pay it because you're still poor. Then if you get pulled over again, you actually have a warrant for your arrest because you couldn't pay for your speeding ticket, you couldn't pay for your suspended license, and now there's a warrant. And now, simply because you don't have enough money, you're a criminal. Um, driving on a suspended license is a unique offense because in order to make money, you have to drive. Most people need to drive. That is the society we live in. Most, most cities don't have mass transportation. Yeah. So in order to dig out of your hole, you actually have to drive to get to work. And if you get caught, then you just dig your hole deeper in an attempt to get out of it. So that, by all accounts, is the types of crimes that Philando Castile was guilty of. That said, he was guilty of no violent crimes. He was a lawful gun owner. He had a lawful concealed carry permit, which says a lot because felons can't get those. So if he were truly a bad guy, he couldn't have had that in the first place. Um, he was lawfully carrying his gun the day that he was pulled over. 
he was pulled over in Minnesota by an officer who thought he matched the description of a bank robber. He wasn't the bank robber. Uh, the description the officer was going off of was blackmail with dreadlocks. Well, there's a lot of blackmails with dreadlocks. A lot of people fit that description. It's not specific enough. Mm -hmm. um, so he saw Philando Castile driving. Philando Castile was a black male with dreadlocks. He pulled him over for a brake light being out, which is totally lawful. You can do that. When he stopped Philando Castile, he went up to the car. They had an exchange. Philando Castile told him, hey, I'm a registered gun owner. I have my gun on me. I just want you to be aware of that. Yeah. And as Philando goes to reach for his wallet, the officer perceives that he's reaching for the gun. He tells him no. And immediately there's a shooting. Mm -hmm. Also in the car is Philando's girlfriend and her four-year-old daughter. So Philando's the driver, girlfriend's the front seat passenger, the four-year-old's in the back seat. This officer shoots into the car with a woman and a child as his backdrop. And backdrop just means anything that's behind your target. So he perceived Philando Castile as a threat. He shot Philando Castile. His backdrop was a woman and a child, which that alone is an enormous issue. He had a backup officer who was on the passenger side of the car who didn't perceive any threat at all and never even took his gun out of the holster, even after the officer had fired. That shooting interested me because I was curious as to why that officer felt so much fear and felt the need to do what he did. Because I've been in that officer's shoes and I've never felt that need. I've, I've never on a traffic stop and I've been in essentially the exact same scenario dozens of times. And I've never once felt that fear that, oh my gosh, this person's reaching for a gun and he's going to shoot me. Mm -hmm. Typically when people are going to shoot you on a traffic stop, they don't tip their hat. They don't say, hey, by the way, I'm armed and let me get my license. You don't know they're armed until they're pulling the gun and shooting you. So the fact that Philando Castile even said that is indication number one, he probably wasn't going to hurt this officer. So that was the first time something occurred that was on the national level that caught my attention and got me to thinking. And from that moment on, through various means, I've, I've learned a lot and I've done a lot of research and I've learned about in America that I wasn't privy to because I'm white, Sim simply stated. Yeah. We live in a different America and I didn't know that. I really truly didn't until I took the time to learn it. And my perception of things has changed a lot in four years. Yeah, I grew up in a small town in Michigan. There were no black people. Well, one black kid in my school, one in my church. And I wasn't really aware of racism either. I didn't see it yeah. because there weren't, uh, there weren't many opportunities. No. But even, even so, I live in Tennessee now. I used to live in Arizona and I started policing in, in Arizona. I moved to Tennessee in 2016. I didn't see it in Arizona like I see it in the South. Yeah. You know, I can't even say that for sure because I, I wasn't aware of it until I moved. I, I didn't take those steps to learn about things until I moved here. Right. So maybe if I were to go back to Arizona, I'd see it there also, which I imagine I probably would. Yeah. But moving to the South had an effect on me for sure. Uh, that definitely changed some things. And there was one encounter I remember. I was in training still because when you started in a department, you have to go through the, the field training process again. And I had made a stop on a car at night. They didn't have their headlights on. I got up to the window and it was a black lady and her daughter. And I'm, although I'm 6'3 and bald and potentially intimidating looking, especially <laughs> given my profession. Yeah. When I say I'm an atypical cop, I really mean I'm an atypical cop. I'm very nice on traffic stops. I have no power trip <laughs> mentality whatsoever. 
I approach people and treat people with decency every time, all the time. So while I'm physically intimidating, my nature is not that way at all. So I walk up to the window. Well, the second this woman and her child saw me, they were frozen in fear. And it was legitimate and it was true. And I saw it immediately. And they were absolutely horrified. And I started talking to them because I was really taken back. I couldn't understand why they were as scared as they were. I told them, I said, hey, you know, it's nighttime. You're driving without headlights on. That's why I stopped you. You had no headlights on. And she recognized that she had forgotten to turn them on. So she turned them on. And I said, it's no big deal. You know, it's no big deal. Where are you guys going? You know, cheap talk, whatever. Asked for their license. Got it. Both of them were fine. No warrants, no suspended license, no nothing. Just normal people. But they were terrified the entire encounter. Yeah. And that had never happened to me in Arizona. I'd never seen that before. Mm-hmm. And that was early on in my time in, in the South also. And, you know, it's just little encounters like that that get you to thinking. If you care and you want to learn a different perspective, those are the types of interactions you can learn a lot from. And then you start, instead of taking offense when people have different opinions about things, especially your profession, you listen to them and you learn why they have a different perspective and you learn what their perspective is. And instead of trying to tell them, oh no, cops are great. We do everything perfectly. Let me explain to you why policing happens the way it does. Instead of doing that, you listen to them and let them explain to you their perception. And if you listen, you learn a lot. And I have learned a lot in four years. Yeah, well, of course, here in Tennessee, we have in the state capitol a statue of the founder of the KKK. Yeah. And the legislatures have been trying to get rid of this thing for, well, it was put up in the 1970s, which tells you a lot. Yeah. But they've been trying to get rid of it for years and they're still making a fuss over it. They still can't get rid of it. Well, and, you know, these are the, these are little things that never bothered me or occurred to me that are really, that speak volumes. Um, on Interstate 65, in between, I believe it's Old Hickory and Harding, there's a statue of, I think, the same person, Nathan yeah. Bedford Forrest, right? Yes. And all the Confederate states, all the, all the state flags of all the Confederate states are surrounding this statue with him on his horse. And... For the longest time, you know, it just, it didn't occur to me why that would be so disheartening to people. Mm. I was like, well, it's a fact. It is history. It is a part of our country. Tennessee is a Southern state. Like it just to me was history, but it's because I didn't live or see in America that black people see or live in. Yeah. And it takes a lot of work for people like me to see that America. Mm. Um, once you take the steps to learn about it, you see it very clearly and plainly, but it takes a lot of work. And, you know, Donald Trump becoming president was an eye opener because that emboldened people who previously had kind of kept their opinions to themselves. But if you choose to learn about different perspectives, you do. And it's life changing. And that second uh, statue of Nathaniel Bedford Forrest, it's a very horrifying amateurish production. (laughs) And people have dumped uh, pink paint on it now. So it's quite comical. Well, and it's, I mean, they, they lost. It's almost as if they don't know that they lost. The, the statue is him on a horse and the horse is up on its hind legs and it's very victorious looking. I think he even has a sword out, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And it makes no sense. They lost. Right. If you want to make the argument that we should keep these relics around because it's history, well, then portray history correctly because that statue, it seems to indicate that they won. <laughs> they didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Thankfully. Uh. 
And that statue was put up by a millionaire. It's on private property, which is why they haven't been able to take it down, although it's been vandalized multiple times. Yeah. But the one in the Capitol is on government property. That's what makes that one so disturbing to me. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Like I said, a lot of people who haven't, a lot of white people, I should say, especially police officers who haven't done the work to learn a different perspective. I sound like a crazy person right now. You know, I'm not, I'm not back in the blue. Mm-hmm. In my eyes, being a police officer is a profession. You can choose to not do it at any time that you like. And it is a profession where we swore to serve and protect everybody. And what better way to serve and protect people than to learn their perspectives? So it's not that I don't back the blue. It's just that it's a job and it's a means to an end. It's the way that I chose to hopefully help people. And we're not suffering. Police in America aren't suffering. If you don't like it, just pick a different career. You'd probably make a whole lot more money and it'd be less dangerous. So after Philando Castillo, what were some other things that got your eyes opening or showed you a new perspective? Moving to the South, of course, it's just different here. It just is. It's the heartland of the KKK and the Confederacy. One thing that opened my eyes was just meeting new people. And early on, right around the time I met you, actually, I met a friend who's from Memphis and he just, he's a black kid from Memphis. I mean, that's a whole different reality I've never experienced and never could imagine until you meet somebody and listen to them. And he and I became good friends and I learned a lot from him. Just studying actual history, you know, when you go to school, you're not taught all of history. You're taught what they want you to know. And it's cherry-coated or, or cherry-picked. They, they pick the good stories and leave out the bad stories. My entire life, I didn't know that Christopher Columbus was a monster. Right. I thought he discovered America. I was taught that Christopher Columbus discovered America. He didn't. Yeah. And he was a horrible human being. And yet we celebrate him every year. Well, you don't learn that in school. Um, you don't learn about the way that the colonialists came over here and decimated Indians and literally just genocide, wiped out the indigenous people. And as soon as we did that, we brought slaves over and had free labor for hundreds of years. You, you learn about slavery, but you don't learn about the specifics of slavery. You don't learn about how long it lasted. It's just, you know, the conqueror writes history. Well, white people conquered and we wrote the history and it reflects that, but it's not the true history. There's another history that people it would behoove them to learn. And I did. And I, I learned a lot. There's another person that I came in contact with. His name's Tim Wise. And he's an author and an activist. He's a white guy. And his whole career is speaking out against racism and white supremacy. And I'm telling you, you can learn a lot from that guy because he's, he's a white guy who he opened my eyes to a lot of things. The, the way that education takes place, the fact that everything is test-based and how that's actually part of white supremacy. Hmm just the way that we're tested because certain skills aren't, they're not nurtured. If you're a good test taker, you do well in school. Otherwise you're left to rot. And it's just a whole bunch of dynamics, just a whole bunch of things that aren't intuitive to white people that you can easily learn about if you take the time to. What's it like to learn about this stuff while you're on the job as a police officer? <laughs> uh, it's disheartening. Yeah. It's really disheartening. And it's not because necessarily the people I work with work with are bad because they're not they're great people I said it before and I'll say it again I don't work with cops who you see on the nightly news the people I work with don't do those things and if they did I would no longer work in that department 
the two departments I've worked for are actually good departments. And the people I've worked with are good people. But that doesn't mean there's not a problem. There is an enormous problem, but it's a systemic one. I mean, it's, it's the basis of our country and it's the way our laws have been written. If you just take drug laws, just drug laws, it's grotesque the way that they've criminalized drugs and what it's done to people. And it was purposeful. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you go back and you learn about Reagan and the war on drugs in the 80s, it was purposeful. It was a way to disenfranchise people. And I've seen it over and over and over again. Addiction is a disease. It absolutely positively is a disease. And to criminalize a disease only makes it worse. And the war on drugs was never meant to be won. It was a means to an end. It was a way to disenfranchise people and it's worked perfectly. And it won't ever be won because it wasn't intended to be won. That's just one example. And that's why I say it's systemic. You know, the officers I work with are good and they're, they are upholding the law. The problem is the law. Yeah. That's the issue. I mean, I've, I've navigated it as best I can. Um, luckily, there is discretion in policing. And in Tennessee, drug offenses are misdemeanors. So there's nothing that says I have to cite people for misdemeanors. I have discretion and then I'm able not to, which is nice. So obviously, I've used that a lot. But yeah, no, it's difficult for sure. It's been eye-opening. Do you think the answer is in changing the laws or in interpersonal relations, changing people's hearts, or do those two have to proceed at the same time? I think both are very important. You can't teach people to care. So you said, you know, change people's hearts. Well, you've got to want to change. Yeah. You, you've got to want to learn other perspectives and you have to care. One thing that policing does very poorly is that it becomes this brotherhood where it's a club, it's a social club. And, you know, we're brothers and we're out there fighting crime and the criminals, a dirty, filthy criminal, and they victimize people. And, and that's very much the mentality. Well, there's a reason why people are criminals. And if you take the time to talk to them and learn about them, you realize that the reason is never because they chose to be. I've, I've been a, cop for 13 years and I've talked to many, many people that I've arrested and not one of them said, you know what? I just choose to screw my life up. I just, I just wanted to do this. I wanted to be a criminal. That's never the case. And it's always the case that they faced circumstances beyond their control that were very, very, very hard. And that's not to say that they couldn't have made better choices because they could have, and some people do, but it's, it's hard. And you can't expect that Somebody growing up impoverished without a dad in gang culture is just simply going to make better choices. That's, that's unreasonable to think that that's easy to do. It's not easy to do. Yeah. And that's why the ones who do fight through that environment and come out the other end successful are the exception that prove the rule. The rule is growing up impoverished in gang culture means your life is going to be very challenging and you're probably going to make a lot of bad choices. That's the rule. The exception to the rule is the one person or the few people who actually have the fortitude to live in that environment and still thrive. That's asking a lot of people and most people can't do it. And the people who can are exceptional. Everybody else is just normal and a victim of the circumstances. So to me, that's the way that you empathize is you, you realize that and you don't hate people for circumstances that are largely out of their control that led them down a dark path. Mm -hmm. you, you listen to them and you truly try to help them. But like I said, I don't know that you can teach that. You either care to learn that and care to view the world that way or, or not. 
never forget that a lot of cops, especially in the South, are Christians. Mm -hmm. And Christianity teaches that you're sinful and that we're all born into sin and you need Jesus to save you. And we're all wretches until we're saved by the Christ. Well, that feeds right into this narrative. Well, these criminals are just wretches. They just need Jesus. It's 100% their fault. If only they would submit to the will of Jesus, everything would be fine. Well, that's not true either because I've arrested a lot of Christians. <laughs> um, I've been to a lot of suicides where there's a lot of Bibles in the home. Um, I've seen Christians do some pretty horrific things. So it's not true. It, it's not, yeah. you know, and I've seen it over 13 years. I've seen it over and over and over again. I was going to ask if your job has given you a darker view of human nature, seeing the underbelly of society, but it sounds like it's actually given you a more positive view of human potential. I think it has actually too, because I look at things very matter-of-factly. If I go to a death scene where somebody's overdosed, there's always a reason why. And the reason's always extremely tragic, but it's never just this person's a piece of trash and they just made bad choices throughout their life. So... Yeah, I mean, I've seen horrible things over 13 years for sure, and extremely tragic, some of which I wouldn't even bring up on here because it's just so gross and grotesque to even hear about that these things happen. But I guess because my true intent is to help and to understand and to empathize, I'm able to. And so the encounters that I have, they just go differently than a lot of cops, even with people that I've arrested, especially with people that I've arrested. Because people that are getting arrested don't expect that the police are going to be on their side on, on any level. And I can simultaneously arrest somebody, put them in handcuffs, put them in the back of my car, take them to jail and charge them and show them respect and decency and understanding. And that, that makes an enormous difference. Just treating them like a human being, it changes everything. Yeah. And who's to say what these encounters, what fruit they've borne. Some of these people I never see again. But I can say for sure, there's a handful of people who it's changed everything for them. Um, and I know it has because they've reached out to me in subsequent years and told me what an impact it had. Well, great. You hear a lot about the need for better training with police. Do you think empathy can be taught? No, I really don't. Hmm. Because they try. You know, there's de-escalation training. There's racial profiling training. There's different trainings that it kind of sort of attempt to in a roundabout way, but some people just, I, no, I think, I think it's really hard. People are different. Some people care more. I've thought a lot about that and I've got no good answers. It might take some kind of life-changing experience to happen to them. Yeah, it probably does for a lot of people. And it just takes, it's hard to put into words because you'd almost have to be in the industry to see the way even good cops who don't mistreat people, they still don't view them properly. And, and I work with a bunch of good cops who don't mistreat people, but their perception of the people they deal with is not a good one. They don't respect them. They don't empathize with them. They don't care about them. They want to put them in jail because in their world, they are the wolves who are victimizing the sheep and it is our job to protect the sheep. Um, I just don't see it that way at all. I, I People do bad things for reasons that are often beyond their control yeah. and they don't have resources. And if they had resources and they had opportunity and they had a better upbringing, they would have made better choices. So I don't look down my nose at them or judge them, but I don't know how you teach that. I truly don't. You mentioned de-escalation training. 
it seems like that's been failing in a lot of instances. There's way too much escalation. You know, there was a shooting in Nashville recently. It was a couple of weeks ago. Uh, there was a traffic stop where the officer it was in East Nashville within the last two weeks. And something occurred to me watching that video that had never actually occurred to me. They teach us de-escalation. However, we don't even realize in our training that we escalate situations where in our mind, we're simply just doing our job lawfully. So in the in incident that happened in Nashville, he pulled over a car because the registered owner had six warrants, um, all drug related, ironically, or maybe not. Five of the six warrants were felonies and the vehicle had very dark tinted windows so he couldn't see who was driving the car. So he makes this stop, which is fine. That's totally lawful. Went up, turns out it's not the registered owner, it's a female. Well, as soon as the car stops, she jumps out, which is suspicious. It's unusual. Most people who aren't committing other crimes stay in the car. Yeah. Um, it's, it's an indication that they want to distance themselves from what's in the car when they jump out like that. So that's something we're trying to look for. So that was suspicious. When she does that, he, I think he smelled marijuana because there's marijuana in the car. So at that point, he has every right to detain her um, and he has every right to search because the odor of marijuana in Tennessee gives you the legal right to search. So he goes about doing this. And at some point before backup arrives, he decides he's going to detain her. He had the legal right to detain her because he has the legal right to arrest her. Here's what de-escalation training misses. Just because he has the legal right to detain her doesn't mean it's not an escalation. Detaining someone is an escalation. It's a lawful one, but it escalates the situation. It communicates to the person, you're no longer free to leave. You're probably going to jail and you're in big trouble. That escalates it. Even if it's lawful, it's an escalation. So the way that you de-escalate that is you don't do it by yourself. You wait for backup to come. You communicate to the person. He didn't tell her he was going to detain her. He just grabs for her hand haphazardly, and then the fight is on. That's fight or, fight or flight. He triggered something in her that some people can't control. If you feel threatened, you have the option to fight or flee. She fled. That is an innate response. You know how you, you defeat that? Is you communicate. You don't surprise them. Yeah. You treat them with decency. You treat them with respect. You empathize, you listen to them, and then you communicate to them. And I've done it for 13 years. And almost never do I surprise somebody with handcuffs mm -hmm. because I recognize that that escalates the situation unnecessarily. What I do is communicate to them. And for 13 years, I've been talking people into handcuffs. Mm -hmm. I could just about hand them the handcuffs and they put themselves in it because I, I, I de-escalate by not unnecessarily escalating the situation. And the way you do that is you just talk to them. You tell them what's going on. You explain to them, hey, here's why I stopped you. Here's what I found. Here's the process going forward. We can do this very peacefully. We will do this very peacefully. And the second they understand and you don't surprise them with a gotcha, it makes a world of difference. You, you defeat that fight or flight mechanism in them. Yeah. And that's what happened to that woman. He went to grab her to put her in handcuffs and she fled. She, and people say, you know, just do what the police say. Well, sometimes that's possible, but sometimes it's not. If you trigger somebody's innate response to either fight or flee, well, you've triggered it. And that's a natural biological thing. Just because we're the police doesn't mean biology goes out the window, <laughs> you know? So these are things that cops need to realize. And, you know, de-escalation training needs to just be better tactics. Yeah. Don't unnecessarily detain somebody by yourself, communicate to them, 
and don't surprise them with it. There was no reason he needed to do that. Up until he escalated the situation by trying to detain her, she wasn't a threat. There was no reason to do what he did. Now, what he did was lawful though, but in my view, it was bad tactics and it caused a bad outcome. Yeah. What do you think of our gun culture? I'm pretty much against guns. Yeah. I think I think for hunting, that's fine, but I don't believe in guns for self-defense. I think it's created an arms race between police and citizens. It absolutely has. And, you know, it's America and we're, <laughs> our foundation is what it is. And guns is part of our foundation. Second Amendment, right to bear arms. It's right there. They thought of it almost immediately. But I would, I would say when you read the Second Amendment, it really has to do with the army. Yes. It's saying because we need a, a militia, which is well-trained. Is that mm -hmm. the phrase of well-organized militia? That's talking about the army. Yeah. Also, it referred to muskets, <laughs> which was the yeah. only single shot guns. Now, I'm, as anybody could guess at this point, I'm not your typical cop. So as such, I'm not a gun person. I don't, I'm not, I would not own firearms if not for my job. And I didn't previous to becoming a cop. But you're absolutely right. Guns are everywhere and they're too accessible and they're too easy to obtain. And it creates these situations. Yeah. If guns were less prevalent, there'd be less shootings, mm -hmm. period. It's just, it's common sense. Right. Vehicles are regulated. You have to have a license to get one. You have to register one. You have to learn how to use one. None of that is true for guns in most cases. In most states, in a lot of states at least, you can, if you're not a felon and you're an adult, you can just go out and get a gun. No training needed. In some cases, no permits needed. Yeah. It's an instrument designed to kill people. Why in the world would we allow people to have these with no training and no registration and, and no permits? It doesn't make any sense, but yeah. it's America and we love our guns. Um, there's a reason why there's so many more guns in this country than any other country in the world, because that's what's important to us. That's what Americans love, but there's too many. It is part of the issue for sure. I think a lot of it is driven by the gun manufacturers. These are corporations who want to sell more guns every year. That's how they mm -hmm. keep their stock price rising. Yeah. And how do you do that? You create an atmosphere of fear. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what's been done. That's, that's part of the systemic. That's how systemic racism, I think, is most obvious, is we are taught to fear. And cops are taught to fear. And the cop who shot Philando Castile was genuinely in fear. And you know why? Because it was a black dude with dreads mm -hmm. and he perceived that this guy was going for a gun. The fear was instilled in him through the media, um, through various ways. White people are taught to fear black people, period, end of story, and it works. Mm -hmm. Here's a fun little anecdote uh, that most people are going to find absolutely hilarious, but it's simply true. So black people have different hair. It's hard to manage. It's impossible when it gets wet. Um, so they wear skull caps which is the, um, what's another term for it? Um, Do-rag? Do-rag, yeah. But it's the tight one. It's the really tight one that goes tight over the head. It doesn't look like a, a beanie or anything like that. For the longest time, I associated that with crime. I, I would see somebody wearing one, and I would think criminal, gang member. I never even knew it had a practical purpose. I literally never knew until I took the time to find out and discussed it with a black person. They're like, oh no, we wear that because our hair is impossible to manage. And if it gets wet, it's a nightmare. Mm -hmm. So we put that on. I'm like, I didn't even know. I had no idea. 
But I was conditioned to see something that is part of the dress of black people because they're different from white people. And I was conditioned to associate that with crime. And I had my entire life, my entire life. I never even knew it had a practical purpose. Yeah. But the conditioning works. And cops, I can't speak for all of them because I'm only one, but I can speak for myself. Up until I realized the conditioning that it had happened to me, I did. I feared black people, especially at work. When I'd make traffic stops, when I walked up to the car, if I saw it was a black person, I was more fearful because I'd been conditioned to think that way. And I'm not that way anymore because I, I recognize the conditioning and I fight against it. And I refuse to, to let this culture do to me what it does to many people. And that's not to say it's easy, but at least I'm aware of it. And at least I work to try to remedy it. Yeah. Going back to Philando Castillo, the NRA should have been the first to be defending him. It's how, how telling is that? Yeah. The NRA, they are so for gun rights. That's their whole premise is guns, 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 guns. He was a lawful gun owner, lawfully in possession of a concealed weapon. And when he went to reach for his license, the cops killed him. The NRA should have been up in arms, but they weren't. Yeah. So what does that tell you? Why wouldn't they be? The only explanation is that he doesn't look like your standard NRA member. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I think they sell more guns by promoting fear of black people. For sure. Yeah. You need protection. That's, that's what everybody's convinced. Here's the funny thing. I've carried a gun on me everywhere in public for the last 13 years. I've never needed to use it while at work. I've never used it. I have pulled it. I've never shot it, but I'm in a world where you think if the narrative they feed to us was accurate, I'd be having to pull it and shoot it all the time. I never once have not one time. So why do normal people need it? Yeah. You know, they, they create this fear where, you know, how are you going to protect your family? How are you going to protect your home? Well, I don't know, but I'm 44 and my home's protected and I've never had to pull a gun. You know, they'll bring up one instance where somebody had to, well, guess what? Bill Gates dropped out of college and he's the richest person in the world. Does that mean college? <laughs> I mean, you can't look at these one-offs and make a blanket statement, you know? Yeah. I think there are so many more accidents with guns and people being tragically killed more than there are people defending their home against an intruder. For sure. I guarantee it. The statistics bear it out. Yeah. So many sad cases of people shooting one of their relatives or a roommate who's coming in at an unexpected hour. Yeah. Or kids finding them. And, you know, it's funny because I work with a bunch of cops who are, like I said, good people, but they're a product of their culture, just like I was. And they're very, uh, most of them are very, very much gun enthusiasts. Well, as such, they go by the old moniker, you know, guns don't kill people, people kill people. So they allegedly think this because they espouse it. So I have to assume that what they say is truly what they believe. But it's funny because anytime we're going to a scene, like let's say we go to a residence and we've had history at this residence. Well, anytime we get called to a house, if there's something pertinent to remember, dispatch will add that important information and attach it to that residence. So anytime there's a call at that residence, this important information is relayed to us. Well, one of the things that's always relayed is if there's guns in the home. Hmm. Well, why does that matter if guns aren't the issue? Hmm. Because a lot of the people I work with make the claim that guns aren't the issue. People are the issue. But they don't tell us about whether or not this home has baseball bats. 
<laughs> they don't tell us whether or not there's knives in the kitchen, which there are in every single house. That's never related to us. They don't tell us if the person um, has a bow and arrow. It's guns. It's specifically guns. This home has guns. Yeah. So they simultaneously say, well, guns don't kill people. People kill people. But anytime we're going to a residence that has is known to have guns in it, three or four of us show up. Yeah. So I think guns is the problem. And our behavior reflects that. Why is it then that most police support loose gun laws with more people getting guns? Because they themselves love guns, I guess. It's just the culture. It's, it's America. Hmm. It's self-defeating for sure, because it makes our job much harder and much more dangerous. But it's just, that's what we've been fed. This is America and we have a right to own guns and they want, they themselves want guns and they've been taught. So here's the other thing too, is, you know, we're conditioned. Well, politicians condition us that the Democrats are going to take your guns away. Yeah. Yeah. They're coming for your guns. You hear that all the time. It's a right wing talking point. So they don't want to lose their guns. So they don't want anybody else to lose guns either. Meanwhile, I always like to point out that Sandy Hook happened in 2012 when Obama was president. So if you can have a bunch of kindergartners get gunned down with a AR and Barack Obama doesn't take your guns, they're never going to be taken. It's a fear tactic. It's not true. Nobody's coming for your guns. Now, what politicians should do is they should regulate them. It should be much harder to get them. But if you're a law-abiding citizen, you'll always be able to get a gun. It is America today. I hope you're wrong about that. Is it the AR-17 or 14? AR-15. AR <laughs> somewhere in the middle. <laughs> well, I, I hope you're wrong about the AR-15. I would like to see those banned. I hope that they'll be harder to get. Um, they should be harder to get. But there are millions already out there. Oh, yeah. That's the problem. One. Yep. I think they should be bought back. I know it's it would be difficult to pry them out of the hands of people who don't want to give them up. That could be a very messy thing. Yeah, and if you're a law-abiding citizen who already possesses one, so, you know, that's those are the people I'm talking about. Laws may change going forward, but I can guarantee you there will never be a time in this country where the government literally comes for your guns. If they were to outlaw the AR-15 today, people would be grandfathered in. People who already possess them lawfully would still be able to. The only thing they could do, I think, is stop making them. But again, that goes back to profit and capitalism and gun manufacturers. Yeah. Well, there was an assault rifle ban for a number of years, and there weren't. Well, for actual assault rifles. An AR is not an assault rifle. But it's been used in enough assaults that yes. uh, it's, <laughs> it's plenty powerful enough. By definition, it's not. But yeah, I mean, automatic weapons are banned, those types of things. Um, and, you know, I have an AR-15 at work. I have one issued to me. And there is no reason why normal people need to have that firearm. Yeah. It is incredibly lethal. And they're very easy to handle. A handgun is a much harder thing to shoot accurately. Well, I think they've got to go. So I don't, I don't know how exactly. Maybe it's just a matter of uh, changing hearts, like I said earlier. Yeah, there's a lot of work to be done. Yeah. I mean, there have been so many shootings. and We had one just a week or so ago. And yeah, it, people don't seem to want to give up the guns. I don't understand it. No, because they're being told by politicians that it's their right to own them and they themselves love them and want them. And... It's just what's important to them. It's a whole culture. I mean, it goes even deeper than that. I think in some cases it's, I think it's tied back to religion, honestly, or Christianity.
which you would think would be the opposite. You would think of Jesus as a peacemaker. You would think Jesus has changed a lot over the millennia. <laughs> <laughs> so could you elaborate on that? How would you tie in like gun owners with Christianity? You know, I'd have to let them explain themselves, uh, but there's people I work with who just in the way that they behave, I can see that it's, it's part of their, their ideology. It's, well, you know, spiritual warfare. If you're a Christian or one form of Christian, you believe that everything's a, a war. We're at war with the devil. We're at war with evil. Um, it's that mentality. And they truly believe that crime is the result of sin, as I said before. They think that it's a fallen world and people are sinful. And if you just accept Jesus, then everything changes. Well, if you believe that we're always in the midst of spiritual warfare and everything is the result of sin, well, then the people have it coming. You know, criminals have it coming because they're fallen, they're sinful, they're refusing to repent. And, you know, when Jesus comes back, they're all going to go to hell anyway. So if that's your mentality, then these people are getting what they deserve, which I could not disagree with that more. Yeah. It's terrible. But if that's the way you think, you could see how gun culture would play right into that. You know, there, there's these depraved, sinful people out there raping and pillaging our cities. Apparently, this is apparently the world they live in. And you need your guns to protect. It's God's given right to bear arms and to protect your family. That's, I think, the biggest change I've seen in Christianity in my lifetime. I grew up in a backwoods fundamentalist church and people had guns for hunting but there was no discussion of them. What we would hear in church were stories of martyrs and people being killed for their faith. And the whole idea was that they were bearing witness yeah. by allowing themselves to be killed and others would be brought to the Lord by this example. Yeah. And I remember sermons about whether self-defense is okay, lethal self-defense. And the idea was, yeah, that's, that's okay. God won't condemn you for that. But the higher ideal is to become a martyr. Yeah. So this has really taken me by surprise and been disconcerting how evangelicalism has embraced gun culture over the past 10, 20 years. Yeah. And that's something that policing gets wrong too, I think, as far as, you know, I agree that you have the lawful right to defend yourself if you are in a life or death situation. Absolutely. But that life and death situation, they're defining that wrong. They're looking, they're viewing that wrong. I've been in 13 years, there have been five instances where I could have lawfully killed somebody and I didn't because just because it's lawful doesn't mean it's right. Just because I can't do something doesn't mean I shouldn't. And in all five of those instances, I simultaneously recognized that I absolutely could lawfully pull the trigger, but I also knew that it wasn't the right thing because I wasn't truly in fear for my life. Now I could say that I was and the law would have backed me, but I wasn't. And I can't speak to any other officer who's been in a shooting. I, I can't. All I can say for me is that in those five instances, I give you my word, I could have pulled the trigger. I would have been found not guilty. And in all five of those instances, it was not the right thing to do. And I recognized it was not the right thing to do. And I didn't do it. And I couldn't be happier that I didn't do it because I'm not here to kill people. I, I, I didn't become a cop to kill people. I don't want to kill people. There may come a time where I truly am faced with a situation where it's literally life or death. And if I don't do something, either myself or somebody else could die. That may happen. But I'm here to tell you, those instances are few and far between. And people articulate life or death situations, I think, 
and, and I, again, I don't know, I can't speak for them. I don't know their heart. All I can say for sure is that as a 13 year cop, there's times I could have articulated that I feared for my safety and it would have been a lie had I chosen to go that route. Yeah. What has been your highest moment as the officer? There's been several. Um, I'm actually writing a book right now, as you know. I was gonna, I was gonna ask about that uh, at the, in a few minutes. <laughs> you were a huge influence in me deciding to do this because you're an actual author, you're an actual editor, and we've been friends on Facebook for a while and you've had some positive feedback on some things I've written. And you are somebody who knows enough to have an opinion on writing. And for you to say, hey, you should write a book. Well, that means something because you actually write books. So I, that got in my head. I'm like, huh, that's interesting. And I've always wanted to. Um, I've, I've always loved writing. And even when I was in high school, I for a short time thought I wanted to write fiction. But I'm, I'm a slow learner. I'm slow to do everything. I'm, it takes me a while to get around to things. But I did finally decide to do it. It's not going to be a super long book. I'm guessing it's probably going to be around 200 pages. But the title is Lessons Learned from Tragedy, A Misfit Cop's Journey to Awakening. And basically, it's just the process by which I became a cop and then some of my experiences throughout. A lot of the things that I'll talk about, I don't give names. I don't, I don't out anybody. But I talk about some really bad things that have happened, that I've seen happen. But then I talk about what I've learned from it. And there's always something very valuable to learn from these tragedies. But one of the stories that I'll talk about, which is probably the high point of, of my career because I got a life-saving award for it, which I would much rather receive life-saving awards than take a life. Mm. And I'll talk about it in the book. So I guess this would be a good teaser if you want to know more by the book when it comes out. Yeah. But there was a situation where there was an attorney who, for one reason or another, had made some bad choices professionally in his, in his job. And unbeknownst to everybody in his life, including his law firm, he was in a position where he was about to be found out. He, and I don't remember the specifics, but he was failing to work cases. He just wasn't doing what everybody thought he was doing. And it was about to come to fruition and people were going to see it. Well, in his head, this was the end of him. In his head, because he didn't communicate this to anybody. Nobody even knew there was an issue. He, was, he had convinced himself that once this came out that he was basically not doing his job for the last six months. He was going to get fired, disbarred, and divorced. He was convinced of it. So in his head, his, his only out was to kill himself. Well, it's a very long, interesting story. He took every step to kill himself. And his plan was to hang himself from a tree in the backyard of his former home. And I happened, and there's reasons why I was at this house, um, but... I happened to walk around to the backyard as he's standing in the tree getting ready to kill himself. And I think that I'm there for a burglary report because that's what he had done. He had called in a fake burglary report saying, hey, come take fingerprints. My, my house was broken into in, in the back. So that's why I'm there. Well, his plan was that he'd be dead by the time I got there. Well, for reasons that I'll explain in the book, it didn't play out that way. So I get there just in time to see this man in khakis and a dress shirt standing in a tree looking at the ground. Well, I think I'm there to investigate a burglary. So my mind is not processing what I'm saying. So my initial thought is this guy's climbed the tree and he's stuck. Why in the world did this guy climb a tree and now he's stuck? So my initial thought, I almost told him to jump because it seems silly to me that there's this grown man in a tree looking down at the ground as if he was afraid to jump. 
Yeah. Well, I yelled at the, the, the gentleman's name because he doesn't see me. I see him and he doesn't respond initially. I yell his name again. And I said, Hey, and I said his name, are you okay? And he looks at me. He's like, no, I'm not. And he jumps and starts hanging. And it's just as you would picture it. I mean, his neck extends. Now there wasn't an impact. He wasn't up high enough so that when he jumped, there was a long fall and then his body weight caught him. It wasn't like that. He basically just stepped out of the tree and started swinging. So he absolutely would have eventually died, but it wasn't the case where his neck was broken. But, you know, his tongue comes sticking out of his mouth. His neck looks a little extended. His eyes start bulging out and he literally starts hanging. Well, I ended up getting over there and cutting him out of the tree. And uh, when he hit the ground, he knocked himself out briefly. But then when he came to, he started fighting me because he was pissed. His plan was to be dead and I foiled it. And he and I rolled around in the backyard for a little bit. And uh, he's alive to this day. I check on him periodically, not because he knows I do. I just Google his name and he's an attorney. So he comes up last year around this time. He received several awards. He still works for the law firm that he thought he'd be fired from. And before I moved to Tennessee, I went by his house and he's still married. So that is a person who would absolutely be dead today. Um, His kids would be devastated. His wife would be devastated, um, but he's not. And he's still alive and doing well. So I would say that's probably the highlight. Yeah, that's great. It also goes to show we often think that we're that things are dark and we're at the end yeah. of our rope and really they're not. And all you have to do is get out of your head. Our heads are dark places, mm-hmm. are very, very, very dark places. And the way you get out of it is you communicate, you open up to people, you have resources and people that you trust and you simply communicate. Because mm-hmm. um, we all, we, we get lost in our head. And one thing that's been hugely helpful for me is about a year ago, I started meditating, which for the vast majority of my life, I wouldn't even attempt. I think it was silly. I'd laugh at you and say, why? That's, that's absurd. That's ridiculous. What a waste of time. Well, it turns out it's not a waste of time. It's one of the best things I've ever done. Wow. And it's a way to get out of your head. The most important thing that I've learned through meditation is there's a difference between being lost in thought and recognizing thought. And getting lost in thought is dark and it spirals. And that's you can go dark places just like this gentleman did. But if you simply are mindful of the fact that you're lost in thought, it changes literally everything. And until you start doing it, I can't really express how helpful it is, but it it is. It's fantastic. There was a time I would have called someone who tried meditation, just woo woo and crazy and hippie-ish. But meanwhile, I just didn't understand it. And now that I do, it is probably one of the best things I've ever learned. Hmm. But and now I'm wondering, because, you know, you know how I, I used to be a Christian and now I'm an atheist. Well, I, I was so put off by religion that the thought of spirituality just went right out the door with it. Yeah. As soon as I was like, no, okay, this is nonsense. Everything became science and there was no room for spirituality. And I'm just now starting to realize that I was wrong. And I just had a misunderstanding of it, but there, there is a bigger reality and there is something out there and there is something for me to learn. And I'm just now to that point. Yeah. So have you had the discipline to keep up a regular practice? Uh, since I started writing my book, no, because I have a day job, of course, and I have kids and a busy life. So I, I can't write much. I do as much as I can when I can. But the time that I would spend meditating, I actually spend writing now. You could meditate before you write. Yeah. Sometimes I do that. I'll be too stressed out or have a bunch of thoughts swirling around. I need to lay down and meditate a bit before I can get up and do any work. 
Yeah. And one thing I've learned too, is that you can meditate without actually formally sitting down, closing your eyes and meditating. Hmm. You can just recognize, you can take the deep breaths. You can focus on just what it's like to be conscious. You can do that anytime, anywhere. You just become mindful of the fact, okay, I'm conscious. You start paying attention to your body. Okay. I feel this. I feel that. Oh, there's a car that just drove by. I hear this sound. Oh, that thought just occurred to me. Instead of being transfixed by all these things, you simply recognize them. And I do that all the time. I just haven't done a formal meditation since I started writing my book. Writing is its own form of meditation too. Yeah, for sure. It's cathartic for sure. Yeah. Well, you're a great storyteller. So that's why I've encouraged you. And I think it's going to be great. It's an important voice and perspective too, to have an officer who sees systemic racism and these other issues and how to avoid violence. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. And I've enjoyed your podcast. I listened to your latest one today. Great. Do you ever think about speaking on police reform issues like that? It's such a hard audience uh, because there's so much change that has to happen. Well, a lot needs to be done. I guess that's, that's what spurs us on. Yeah. And uh, I'm glad that you're going to have your book out there. I hope your voice helps make a difference, even if in some small way. We'll see. I mean, it's, I've enjoyed writing it for sure. I can't wait to get it done. So, Great. Well, Mark, I, I appreciate you. I sleep a little sounder knowing that you're out there on the streets. Well, I appreciate it. And I appreciate you as well. I've enjoyed your podcast a lot, so I'm happy to be on it. Thank you. Uh, thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Living from the Soul. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, and review. This is an ad-free podcast brought to you by my books, which are available at samtorode.com. The theme music was created by Gideon Tarode.